What's up, everybody? Welcome to Absorbing Yellow SpongeBob Deep Dive, the podcast where me and my friends talk about the making of and admiration for SpongeBob SquarePants. My name is Sam Roberts, and I'm the dad of the group. First of all, I just want to say thank you to all of you that have uh, written in with your um, favorite episodes and or um, moments from SpongeBob SquarePants. We've actually gotten quite a few of those. Uh, it's been very, very delightful to read. Um, and in the next week or two, um, we'll start going through them. So um, for those of you that don't know, last week I put out a call um, for everybody to please write in to spongespamrobots.com. Um, you can either write or send in, you know, a brief uh, voice memo of your favorite episode and or moment from SpongeBob SquarePants. Second, really quick, uh, many of you have probably noticed that in the uh, past couple of weeks, I have released the podcast into the wild in an unsightly condition. Well, I guess, um, I guess every podcast is unsightly, aren't they? <laughs> Sorry. Morgan hates when I do that laugh. She won't even look at me anymore. <laughs> That's not true. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to make those jokes. Um, so uh, <laughs> that was a really bad joke. I'm really sorry. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Um, a couple of weeks now, I've uploaded the podcast. And thank you to all of you that will, you know, shoot me a text or, or send in an email and be like, hey, um, the sound clips are off on the episode. One week, I caught it early enough that I was able to just delete the episode um, and re-upload it. Last week, uh, I caught it too late. <laughs> and I was like, well, most of you have listened to it. So I guess... You just get this this broken boy of a podcast um, as it is for the rest of eternity, just like me. Um, but I just wanted to uh, yeah, say thank you for those of you that have pointed it out and promise in the future from now on. This is an extremely professional podcast, and I am going to go over not once, not twice, not thrice, but this will be a quadruple pass thrice podcast from now on, and there will be no more sound clips out of place or out of space um, in the history and the future of the podcast ever. Promise. very professional podcast. Very professional. And with that, finally, ladies and gentlemen, speaking of professionalism, I have to offer an apology. The last one was not an apology, to be clear. I'm not sorry about anything. But here I am. Here I am. I promised last week that this week you would be getting Krabby Land and the camping episode. And I regret to inform you that that will not be happening this week. You promised these children Krabby the Clown, but all I saw out there was... <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Okay, I'm so sorry. Um, listen, I'm pulling up a chair. I'm looking you straight in the eyes like a cool substitute teacher, but not in a weird way. I think that you'll understand. First of all, we've already recorded the episode, our first ever, maybe last ever um, panel uh, podcast. Very funny episode. You're going to get it next week. Triple promise. Again, I know that my word doesn't mean anything anymore, but, but you're going to get it next week. I think, though, that you'll understand... And you're going to enjoy this episode a lot today because we got freaking Jay Lender to do an interview on the podcast. I know it's crazy. Mark Milligan said it would never happen. Just kidding. Actually, Mark encouraged me many times to reach out to Jay. And I did. And he was totally down to do it. And I'm sure that you'll hear me say a million times later in the rest of the podcast, thank you <laughs> to Jay for doing it. Um, and I will say it uh, once more here. Uh, shout out to Jay Lender. Thank you so much. You know, I, 
I've shared with this in the past um, on the podcast. Uh, you grew up watching cable television, and you're, you just kind of hope that SpongeBob comes on, but there's no guarantee, you know, pre-streaming services and all that. Um, and 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 you get a little bit older, and you realize like, oh, somebody makes this show. That's kind of weird. And then you start making a podcast on it when you're like uh, 24 or whatever it was. Um, 12 years ago um, and, and you realize like what the heck I can like read interviews with these people and then what the heck I can follow them on Twitter and then I remember sharing like <laughs> one of the times that I tweeted at one of the original writers it was probably Jay maybe it was Sherm Cohen or somebody um, but it blew my mind <laughs> that I could interact with them just in that small way and I think I probably it wasn't even like they tweeted at me it was probably like they liked my tweet they have some semblance that I exist or whatever you know I never Never, ever could have imagined um, actually having one of the freaking writers of SpongeBob on this podcast to discuss it. It's going to be very, very awesome. Um, hopefully, very interesting and entertaining interview conversation. We're going to talk about the origins of SpongeBob. We're going to talk about the legacy of SpongeBob. We're going to talk about some other third thing. <laughs> uh, but anyway, with that, I will not make you wait any longer. Um, please welcome to the podcast. Our friends, uh, the bubble transition sound effect. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Absorbent in Yellow, a SpongeBob deep dive with us on the podcast today. He's worked on things such as Hey Arnold and Phineas and Ferb. Anybody listening to this podcast will know him as the writer of classic masterpieces such as Patty Hype, Squillian Returns, and Graveyard Shift. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Jay Lender. Hey, there. That's the live audience. Just kidding. There's not really no, a lot of audience, but please. right. Yes, of course. Okay. And I promise that is the last, uh, audio clip we'll play <laughs> today, but okay. Welcome again to the podcast. Thank you so much for, uh, doing this. Um, I was telling Jay before we started recording how weird and bizarre this is that I can talk to somebody that worked on SpongeBob and how like not right. It feels almost in a weird way. Like, but but it's super cool, and uh, we super appreciate it, me and all the listeners and stuff. I've been stoked just, like, when I realized, like, oh, I can tweet at the people that wrote this show if I have specific questions and stuff. So that Angry. alone, That's I'm super, show. yeah, grateful for. So so anyway, welcome, and thank you again. Um, to start, a really easy icebreaker question that I like to ask all of my guests is, what is a simple joy that you have enjoyed lately? Can be that I've done lately. Yeah, super wow, specific, like, or you know. So, for example, like Barbara Walters stuff here. Like, what kind of tree do you want to e make? Exactly, exactly. That's <laughs> what we're going for. So, um, you know what? Simple pleasures are are astonishingly hard to come by right now because you can't get out of the house. <laughs> right. Um, uh -huh. So, I, I think right now uh, we got a puppy mm. at the very beginning of COVID. And he is great. I'm absolutely nice. in love with this dog. He's a he's a nutcase. He's a wreck because he's been socialized by the right. disease. Right. So we're out we're out walking around in town, uh, uh, you know, on the street in the neighborhood, uh -huh. and we always cross to the other side of the street. So he's right. learned yeah. that every other dog and every human being is terrifying. Right. And it's very <laughs> hard to kind of undo this weird COVID yeah. socialization he's got. But yeah. when we're in the house, everything's great, and those are the simple pleasures. Nice. That's great. So I uh, did a fair amount of research ahead of time to hopefully uh, ask some 
unique and interesting questions, um, but you did an interview um, a while ago on the Cartoon Lunch podcast that I recommend all my listeners go and listen to. I'm going to try and not just like repeat questions from that or whatever, but you did have one story that you told on there that I just thought was like so wonderful and awesome that um, I would love if you could just kind of share again. Um, So you, of course, got your start in television uh, animation on Hey Arnold. Um, Could you share some of the story of how you first discovered SpongeBob SquarePants? Um, when we made Hey Arnold, we were in the early days of Nickelodeon. So there was no studio per se. We were in rented space all over town. So Ren and Stimpy was south of the Hollywood Hills in Hollywood in a, in a big uh, office building. And Rocco's Modern Life and Hey Arnold were in 4040 Vineland, which I think now is a lucky supermarket. Nice. But yeah. at the time, it was a tiny little uh, neighborhood office building, little two-story building. And Hey Arnold was downstairs and uh, Rocco was upstairs. And, you know, I, I had heard the name Steve Hillenberg. I think at the time he was the uh, supervising director of Rocco, but that show was sort of winding down. And I'd heard his name, but I don't think I would have recognized him in the hallway. But I knew that he was doing this thing called Sponge Boy and nobody knew what mm-hmm. it was. Only, I think, Derek Dryman and Tim Hill, who were working Mm. on that pilot with him in what was essentially a broom closet. Mm -hmm. Um, Only they really knew what was going on in the executives. So, you know, we heard something was happening, but whoever saw it, we weren't really in a studio. They were upstairs on a different floor of the same office building. And for whatever reason, one day I had business on the second floor and I can't imagine what it could have been. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was up on the second floor. And I walked by another one of these tiny little offices, no bigger than a broom closet. And in that particular office, they had a six-plate steam beck, mm. which was a film editing bay. Hmm. So you would have your film on two of the plates winding from one side to mm. the other. And then you would have potentially two tracks of audio hmm. that you could also run back and forth to sync things up. And this was the way we looked at shows when they came back from overseas where all the animation was done. So I walked by this particular steam back, and because it was a big machine in a tiny little room, the door to the room was open because it was a billion degrees in there. And as I walked by, I saw on their screen, you can hear the machine ticking as the film runs through it. Mm. And on the screen of that machine, I saw a tidal wave of anchovies wearing shirts and pants Mm. crashing over a mast that was in the middle of a restaurant. This is the end. And I had no idea what I was looking at, but mm-hmm. I decided at that moment, and I did a cartoon double take. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, it was crazy. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And I decided in that moment, I need to work on that show, whatever it is. And it didn't get picked up for a while, and we didn't actually begin working on the show proper until we were in an actual studio mm-hmm. a year and a half or so later. But yeah, I pulled out all the stops, and and eventually mm-hmm. I had to quit. Right. I, had to, I had to leave Nickelodeon uh-huh. in order to make it possible for them to hire me on SpongeBob because you know when they're in the position to decide who we're going to put on this new show, SpongeBob. Well, we can have someone from the outside and we don't know how good they're going to be Mm. or we can take jay and we don't know how good he's going to be either because he's never written a show while he drew it but 
we know he's really good at this thing he's doing now. So mm-hmm. let's keep Jay here and we'll take a chance on the new guy rather than taking a chance on two different guys. Right. So I had to change the math for them right. by quitting. <laughs> so right. the question now is, it's not, do you want Jay working on SpongeBob or Hey Arnold? It's, do you want Jay in the studio at all? Mm. And I was just cocky enough at the time to right. think that the answer would be yes. Right. And luckily it was. That was the finest fast foodsmanship I've ever seen, Mr. Squarepants. Welcome aboard. That's so nuts. And I just so freaking love like hearing stories of people like share about like kind of SpongeBob at the outset and how there's all these people like, what is this and stuff, you know? And, and it especially seems like, for lack of a better word, like more like the executive types, like this is so strange or whatever. Because then even when the show comes out, you know, people my parents' age are like, what are you watching or whatever? But my whole generation that grew up on it is like, yeah, it's SpongeBob, you know? Right. You guys will barely remember when that show first came out. It was right. like a thing totally. that no one could say the name. Right. Yeah. No one even uh-huh. understood what that name was. And now yeah. it's so ingrained in the culture that right. you couldn't even make that joke now. People wouldn't right. understand what you were talking about. Yeah. Dude, it's so nuts. And it's just... <laughs> SpongeBob easily, I always tell people like it is the thing that like shaped me the most, like creatively and stuff like that. You know, like maybe at number two and three are like Calvin and Hobbes and um, Captain Underpants. But so I, I just geek out hearing about like people like who caught it, like, no, this is going to be something special, you know, and like jumping on board, you know, no pun intended. But yeah, I mean, we, we were all sort of desperate to work on that show. We didn't really know what it was going to be. Right. We didn't know whether Nickelodeon would allow us to do everything that we imagined. Not that that Nickelodeon was a tough place at that time. They weren't because they were, they were the underdogs. And the only way for them to get an audience was by being different. Right. And, you know, we, unfortunately we gave them the success. Steve gave them the success that allowed Uh them to sort of morph into a very staid control Disney like, Right. You know, the, the perfect entertainment for children and nothing right. ever needs to be worried about. Right. Totally. Yeah. Back then, they were the network that crapped on your parents. Right. Totally. Yeah. They, they dumped yeah. garbage on you and uh-huh. they dumped your parents. That's what yeah. we were doing. Yeah. So kind of with that, what was the point where, like, it seems like very early on, you could tell, like, we're making something special. But what was the point for you that you realized, like, oh, this thing is, like, huge. Like, this thing that we were just kind of stoked to get to make it all, like, has become this, like, juggernaut of a cartoon, you know? Right. I, I was very lucky because I did the beginning part of my career at Nickelodeon. Mm. And because we were this sort of maverick outsider um, entertainment company, mm-hmm. everything we did was filled with passion. The, the creators mm-hmm. were in charge of their shows and, and the network, they knew they didn't understand it and that they right. couldn't tell us how to make these shows. Right. But they knew that when they allowed people with passion to do what they do, mm-hmm. something interesting would happen and people would gravitate toward that. You know, their priorities mm-hmm. have changed over the years. But at that time, I was spoiled. Because mm-hmm. everything I worked on at Nickelodeon had that kind of quality. Not everything right. grabbed an audience like that did. Right. Um, but, you know, Hey Arnold, that show was was and is insane if you right. watch it. Uh-huh. I mean, if you're, if you're reading between the lines, we did some very heavy stuff. We did shows right. with down endings. Uh, Helga's parents are verbally abusive right. and alcoholic. 
Right. And we, we didn't have to say those things to know that it's true. Right. But that happens because there's passion there. So mm. we were all very happy to be doing it. We knew that it was going to be cool. I don't think we understood how big it could get right. until maybe a year after we premiered. I mean, we knew that mm. we were a hit. Right. But the conventional understanding of what a hit on children's cable right. was yeah. was about to be blown out of the water. I right. mean, if you could do as well as, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even know what you'd have to right. go to totally, before yeah. then to talk about what a hit would be on children's television. There weren't right. a lot of them. I, I mean, not on children's cable, uh-huh. but the ceiling kept getting higher and higher <laughs> right. and higher for SpongeBob. Yeah. We just couldn't believe it was happening. I think, you know, I remember going into Hot Topic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. at the mall. Right. And seeing a SpongeBob shirt and thinking, right. wow, we have made it. Right. We have shirts. Yeah. And uh-huh. a year later, it's macaroni and cheese and yeah. they're all over the place. Totally. So it was, uh, I, I think that was it. And I, I hate to reduce it to something as right. as crass as, as commercialism and, totally, and yeah. merchandise sales, but that's certainly a good measure. It's as good a measure as any. Right. But, you know, over the years and starting, very quickly. Uh, I'd never worked on a show where, for instance, if I met someone I went to school with and they had a kid where that kid would want, or where the parent, I should say, Mm. would want me to draw a a Mm. cartoon for that kid. Like Mm -hmm. no parent was aware enough of Hey Arnold or, you know, the page master or whatever I worked on before that, that they would say, oh, would you please draw a picture of Arnold? Mm-hmm. Um, but parents were aware of SpongeBob, and right. I think that was, you know, definitely a huge difference. That that while I think Hey Arnold does appeal to mm-hmm. a, a very broad audience, and certainly uh, an adult audience along with a kid audience, mm-hmm. nothing is as big as SpongeBob. So everyone knew about it. And and on a, a weird personal note, mm-hmm. it was the first time my father felt confident bragging about me. Wow! Yeah. So, he didn't understand yeah. what I did or why uh-huh. I would do it or anything like that. And when I was on Hey Arnold, he was very excited that I was employed right. yeah. and, and happy to wear a Hey Arnold crew jacket. Right. But he didn't go running to tell his friends right. that yeah. I was working on that show. Uh-huh. He did for SpongeBob. Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I, on the topic of like parents like getting it and stuff, when, when I was a kid growing up, like my dad loved SpongeBob and it was the only cartoon that he would watch with us. Yeah. Um, and I thought like, this has got to be like too weird for you to understand. And it, maybe it was, but he just like enjoyed it or whatever. And I thought I was like the only person with that story, you know, it's like, this is so special. And then I met a friend in middle school, like who was like, yeah, my dad loves SpongeBob too. And then specifically doing this podcast, I've met person after person after person who have shared like, yeah, it's the only cartoon that my dad would watch with me and stuff like that. So part of me is like, dang, this isn't like a cool anecdote of just me or whatever, you know, but, but another part of me is like, it just adds to this, like, I don't know, mystery of unpacking, like, what is it with this show that it's so like, I don't know, just like transcendent for lack of a better word, you know, but with that, I I've been wondering when you uh, all were writing the show, did you kind of have in mind, like we're writing a kid show or we're writing this for kids or is it more like, we're writing something to make us laugh and oh yeah, this also should be like, you know, 
kid appropriate for Nickelodeon or whatever. What, what was that process like? I, I think I always fall back on the Chuck Jones explanation mm. for this because mm-hmm. the first round of adult appreciation of mm-hmm. cartoons in America, I mean, I think initially, if you go back to Felix the Cat and very mm-hmm. early days of animation, certainly the, the golden age of Warner Brothers, everyone is watching those cartoons and everyone is enjoying those cartoons and no one thought anything of it. Mm-hmm. But Probably when it, it came onto TV and they started doing syndicated reruns of all those cartoons, they run them in the afternoon because they know that the kids will be available to see them. And then it sort of set into people's heads mm. that animation was for kids. Right. And I don't know why that had to happen and why it stuck so hard. But back in the 70s, when the boomers were getting to the age where they were starting to pull the strings of the entertainment industry mm-hmm. and, and media and assessing culture and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. like, you know, my Gen X never really got because we're right. small, but right. the guys after us are, are going to have it. Right. Um, suddenly, Chuck Jones, who was one of the classic Warner Brothers directors, became mm-hmm. a big media celebrity or mm-hmm. a modest media celebrity. And he did interviews everywhere and he spoke at colleges and he was very happy to do so mm-hmm. and to finally be recognized. And people would ask him the dumb question. They would say, right. how do you make these kitty cartoons that adults can stand to watch? <laughs> right. Yeah. And he said, we didn't make them for kids and mm. we didn't make them for adults. We made them for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like wisdom, but it should just be common knowledge. Right. I mean, yeah. Where does where does anyone get off thinking they can <laughs> make something they don't like that's right. perfect for another audience? Right. The only judge you can ever really count on is yourself. So mm-hmm. we made SpongeBob for ourselves. And if there was a rule regarding kids, and I think this is a great rule for mm-hmm. anything you want to run on Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or Disney, it's to not be hostile to kids. Mm. So if you're not doing sex jokes and, and mm-hmm. you know, stuff that, that is just not appropriate for kids or makes kids uncomfortable or, mm. or whatever, mm-hmm. if you're not doing that, what's the problem with having something that maybe isn't targeted to them? Right. And for that matter, what's the problem with an adult watching something that right. isn't about those things that are adult exclusive? So right. I think the, the best shows, the eternal hits, are mm-hmm. going to follow that rule whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we did. I mean, we were sitting around, we weren't sitting around that that studio saying, you know, what what's going to make the kids go crazy? Right, right. We were saying, oh my God, I just thought of this thing and I'm laughing and I don't even know why. Right. And you put it up in front of other people uh-huh. and they would laugh or they wouldn't laugh. And if they right. laughed, it stayed in. And if they right. didn't, we came up with a new one. Why are they laughing? I guess it's just in the timing. Oh, yeah i love so i went to school for graphic design and in my art history classes i remember a point in history where i was like these classical pieces like look like cartoons to me you know and like asking my art history teacher like wait when did this become like a kid thing because now like at this point in history it's just like the new thing or whatever you know and she didn't really know how to like answer that question um with that i took a film history class and uh, in learning about German expressionism, you know, we're watching these different like old horror movies and stuff. And one day in class, they're like, we're going to watch a, a film called Nosferatu. And I was like, what? What? And then 
it starts playing and Count Orlock comes on. And I'm like, holy F, what? You know, and my brain's just like exploding stuff. So as a kid, right. you didn't understand that that came out of another movie. It was just an image that was from SpongeBob. I think I knew that it was from an old movie, but I, I had zero appreciation for like, you know, it's a classic film or right. anything like that. If anything, when I was a kid, I was probably like, I probably thought part of the joke was that his name wasn't Dracula. Cause when I saw it, I was like, that's Dracula. You know, I'm like, why, why do they call him Nosferatu? That's silly. But I think right. it's also one of those things where when you're a kid, you can totally not get a joke at all, but, but know that it's funny. And it's specifically if it's delivered like a joke or if you're hearing your dad laugh, you're like, dude, totally. That was so hilarious. You know, Bad sitcoms have depended on that forever. And right. ever. Your totally. recognition of joke structure. And by the way, it's right. not, it's not a knock on you that you wouldn't know it came oh, from a totally. movie as a child. I mean, I'm, right. I'm well aware at this point that probably most people on the planet know right. that from SpongeBob first. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Uh, which is why I appreciate it so much more because there are so many references in SpongeBob that are so specific, you know, like that just like makes it this like gold mine for. But with that, I wanted to ask I've loved hearing about, you know, you, you kind of like, switching from uh, floorboard Harry to like, no, like Nosferatu should be flicking the lights. But I've still always wondered, like, where did the idea come from? Was it just like it just popped in your head or what I, happened? I, I, I think every idea just pops into your head. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Floorboard Harry, and, and I will make sure that you have a link that can take you to a really great mm. piece from a magazine called Hogan's Alley. That is like the primary source for this podcast. And, and probably not a lot, a lot of people have seen that that magazine or that piece, but I send out the link for this all the time. It's, it is the 10th year anniversary of SpongeBob, and we did an interview roundtable mm -hmm. and talked about how we made the show. And it was, you know, enough distance from the show to know mm -hmm. that it was a classic, but not so far away that we had forgotten our stories or, mm -hmm. or you know, had reduced them to patter like right. I have now. <laughs> right. Of course. Um, but yeah, what happened with that is this is in, in the graveyard shift episode. And we have that mm -hmm. moment when SpongeBob is talking about all of the great things that he's going to do with Squidward at night. Right. And I was forever trying to get weird beats into the show. Uh -huh. And no matter what I did, if it was weird, like, yeah. I mean, like sweater made out of tears weird. If right. I tried to do that, I got to know. Yeah, And yeah, I, yeah. I've never really spoken to anyone about it, but my feeling is that guys like Carl and Aaron and some of the, and Paul and some of the others mm -hmm. were allowed to swing for the bleachers mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. hit them. Yeah. You know, they got those home runs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my role on the show may have been to deliver a show that works. Right, so maybe, right. maybe the other one, we're going to swing for the bleachers and maybe we'll miss. Right. But the other show will be solid and it's okay. So we don't want to go too far off the reservation with those particular shows. And I feel like right. that was my thing. Right. So when we did the at night uh, bit and there are mm -hmm. you know, three or four little beats in there, mm -hmm. one of the ones that I threw in was I'm going to deliver the mail or I'm delivering the mail to floorboard Harry at mm -hmm. night. And he lifts up a section of floorboard and hands a piece of mail down to a, a hand Right. Someone who's hiding below the floorboards of the restaurant. And mm -hmm. it's just a weird non sequitur. Mm -hmm. And it was in the show for a couple of days. You know, mm -hmm. we would work on it and workshop it with Steve and Derek. And then at some point they were like, 
we have enough beats here. Let's mm. lose the weird one. Mm. Mm. So it went. But there was a second part to the joke. And the right. second part of the joke was at the end of the episode, who's flickering the lights? It's Floorboard Harry. And the topper was that they zip over to the light switch and there's a section of floor standing <laughs> right. up and you can just see the eye through the knot hole uh-huh. and uh, legs and the hand flicking the light switch. And when they pulled out the first part of the floorboard Harry gag, I was like, well, now what's our ending? Right, right. And I think they just said, figure something out. Yeah. And I, there, it's not like I sat down right. and was going through lists of right. who would be good to flicker the lights. Right. It, you know, it must have just been a lightning <laughs> bolt. And uh-huh. that was it. And I, I held that joke like a baby. Yeah, I went. I had to go to a bookstore called Samuel French on Ventura Boulevard Mm -hmm. that had nothing but Hollywood books Mm -hmm. in order to find a picture of Count Orlock because there was no internet to speak of at the time. You couldn't just type in Nosferatu and get ten thousand pictures Uh or the whole movie for that matter. Right. So I got that that book, and we had to Xerox it up and blow it up, and Mm -hmm. I carried that Xerox into Nick Jennings' office, who handled all uh-huh. the background paintings and the goofy paintings. And I was like holding the hand of that joke until it went to China to make yeah. sure that everything was going to be okay. Uh-huh. It was, you know, it was the one really goofy gag that right. I got on the show. Yeah. And I, I think what's weird about it now, you know, I, I mean, I can, I can sort of pat myself on the back and say, right. yeah, I, saved, I saved Nosferatu from the ashes. Everyone knows right. about it because of me. Yeah. Right. You know, stupid swagger. Right. But what's uh, what's weird about it now is all of the times they've repeated that gag now. Now he's a recurring character. Right. So what used to be, you know, one of the coolest non sequiturs of all time right. has been, and I don't know if the word is reduced or elevated, <laughs> right. to a, a continuity gag. Right, and yeah. Of course Nosferatu's there now. Right, Because right. he's always been there, even from the time uh-huh. SpongeBob was a kid at right. camp. Right. And, and that's so odd. Uh-huh. And even some part of me wants to be angry. Right. Like, oh, they've ruined Nosferatu. But then right. the other part of me is like, no, that's the that's the appropriate SpongeBob right. reaction to go undermine it with further weirdness. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like when you're a kid, at least for me, I've shared many times on this podcast that I was like a very continuity obsessed and pedantic child, you know, like and I'd be like, wait that room is where in SpongeBob's house? It was here last week or whatever, you know, but, but not even like in an upset way. I'd be like, I must've misunderstood it and try and figure it out or whatever. So I'm sure that I was like, yeah, Nosferatu lives in the Krusty Krab. I didn't know that before and he'll never appear again, but you know, it's just like a fact now. So yeah, that's so fun. There's somewhere out there is a kid who uh-huh. knows Nosferatu from Camp Coral first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. <laughs> but I mean, happy for them, but time is a, uh, <laughs> Weird thing. Yep. Nosferatu. Yeah, so with that, I wanted to ask specifically too, you've shared some about like the wildness of like, I drew this thing, I worked on this thing, and I'm seeing it at Hot Topic or whatever. But I'm sure that you all could have never guessed social media and memes. And SpongeBob has like a whole second life in memes. Like, is it still weird seeing like this drawing I made is being used, you know, for whatever commentary, like, cause it does seem I I'm biased, but I think that of any cartoon, SpongeBob has to be like the most pervasive memed cartoon, you know? Yeah. It, it's incredibly strange. And 
super gratifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were never a political show. Right. As right. much as they wanted us to be like, you uh, know, and, um, people got all up in arms about SpongeBob being gay and, right. and all of that stuff. And, you know, I did the Fry Cook games, right. which is the gayest episode of SpongeBob <laughs> right. ever, but it's right. not gay. Right. It's just two friends who love each other and don't think anything about saying so and holding right. hands. But um, the idea that this stuff that I did way back when, which was, you know, just goofy jokes, has a second life now. Right. And in in ways I can't imagine. And, and I don't love every use of it. I mean, there right. are probably Trumpers out there right, right. now. And, you know, uh-huh. surprise, surprise, I, I'm not a Trumper. Right. Um, but there are probably people out there using scenes from my shows mm-hmm. to push their points. Right. And do I like that? No. But do I right. like the idea that everyone seems to be finding really cool ways to repurpose this material? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's part of the aesthetic of SpongeBob. You know, this right. thing that we were doing where suddenly there would be live action, mm-hmm. you know, and a real hamburger. Right. Or Don, the parking attendant, showing up right. in one of our episodes because old people are great. Right. Um, you you never you could never rely on SpongeBob to be exactly what you thought it was going to be from one mm-hmm. moment to the next. And I think that was what was so shocking, not just about SpongeBob in general, but about each episode that you mm-hmm. tune in as a first time viewer, or in my case, watching the other teams pitching their stuff to the mm-hmm. crew. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what was coming. Right. And, and it, that surprise is fantastic. And I get that every five minutes right. on, online. I mm. see, you know, we should take Bikini Bottom and push it somewhere else. Right. That's one of my bits. Yeah. And I've seen that used in 10 million different ways. And uh-huh. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's excellent. Uh, I was just watching today, actually, um, a Big Pink uh, Loser Idiot um, and the... Uh, is this the Krusty Krab? No, this is Patrick. And my wife even commented, like, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen that. Because it's even, like, it's so crazy. Like, memes have, like, come and gone and then, like, been reborn again. And that one, I guess, is now, like, she teaches high school. And so she sees, like, on TikTok and with her high schools and stuff, like, memes and stuff that are blowing up. So, and I feel like it also just speaks to, like, SpongeBob. I never realized this when I was a kid, but these characters are so, like, earnest that you can't help but be like, oh my gosh, that's my friend. Or like, my roommate is a Squidward and stuff like that. And so you just naturally are like, I can take this thing, you know, like one of my favorite memes right now is the um, SpongeBob uh, in in the Hall Monitor episode, like looking suspiciously and his photo is behind him. And people using that whenever somebody's like, we got to get to the bottom of this, of an issue that they are causing, you know? It's just like the creativity and stuff of being able to map that on to different situations is like awesome. Yeah, I, that, that's actually another one of mine. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget what it was. I saw a really great use of it a, a week or two ago, and I was just yeah. so proud to yeah. see that happen. And, <laughs> and the funny thing is, I mean, that was yeah. the very first episode that I wrote right. and and drew. I had worked on other episodes in the background, just a few for a few right. weeks, and then they threw me into a room with the great Chuck Klein. Right. And he taught me how to do the rest. And that was one of my scenes, but Mm. one of the things that makes it worth working with now in this new Mm -hmm. context is how incredibly ugly it is. Right. And there's something (laughs) that I love about season one of SpongeBob where 
none of us knew what we were doing and uh-huh. nobody could draw SpongeBob. The only one who right. was even close was Sherm. Right. And by the end of season one, Sherm had made, uh, or they had mm. made up a, a character sheet of mm. basically nothing but Sherm poses. Right. And you know, if one of them had miraculously shown up in someone else's show, like uh-huh. a decent SpongeBob show, that would be thrown in there too. Mm. But we all were looking over Sherm's shoulders to figure out how to draw SpongeBob. But there's right. a really cool handmade kind of naive mm-hmm. charm to mm-hmm. season one where yeah. we didn't know what we were doing and the overseas studios didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> totally. So yeah. everything just looks like, yeah, you know, it's like a student project. Right. And it was, but it right. has, it has that much enthusiasm in it. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the uh, Patrick eyebrows of season one. <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe it's just because you're ugly. Ugly. Yeah. So with the topic of like the collaborative nature of it, I'm just curious, did other writers contribute like jokes to each other's episodes? And if they did contribute, are there any jokes of yours that are like in other episodes hiding, you know? No, generally not. And the the teams were very close knit and we were all at different points in our cycle and we were incredibly busy. People were working stupid hours, which Mm -hmm. I would not recommend without being Mm -hmm. paid stupid money, Mm -hmm. which we were not. Right. Um, But, you know, you had to keep your nose in your own business, not Mm -hmm. because people were upset, but you just had too much business to do. Right. So Derek and Steve would come in. We would write for a week. So Mm -hmm. me, uh, my partner and I, whoever it was from one moment to the next, we would get a premise which had been generated by the the writing staff. And Mm -hmm. those people didn't do drawings. They just Mm -hmm. wrote. And we would get a three page premise from them and, and sort of boil it down. Okay. SpongeBob mm-hmm. promises a Valentine's day gift to Patrick. They go to the fair and it doesn't mm-hmm. arrive. And then you crumple up the outline. You start over again. Right. And you know, if there are good bits in there, you use them and mm-hmm. we would do our thing for a week. And then Derek and Steve would come in and look at it and point us in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And then in the second week after we had refined Derek and Steve would come in for the last afternoon on mm-hmm. third or for the afternoon and night of Thursday, mm-hmm. we were going to pitch Friday morning and they would sit down, we would order dinner and they would go through every single panel and word mm. of it. And we would redraw like crazy and we would right. write new gags and cut. And in that way, they sort of put their stamp mm. on, on every episode and, and kept them feeling consistent. Mm-hmm. But we really didn't do that much, um, looking at what the other teams were doing. So Mm -hmm. there were moments here and there where I would go on hiatus. And because we were on a rotating schedule, I would be on hiatus for a week before someone else went on hiatus or whatever. Right. And I, I, I know I helped out Sherm and Mm -hmm. Aaron with Mm -hmm. one or two shows like, Mm -hmm. you know, cleaned up. I cleaned up a scene with SpongeBob and Patrick carrying Squidward on a palanquin and Patrick drops a watermelon on yeah, Squidward's yeah. face. Uh-huh. But I don't remember writing any gags. So sure. I think at, at that point in the process, it was already done. I was just doing cleanup. Come on. I was just going to draw a cartoon. Okay. Why didn't you say so? Yeah. I, I feel like I can read over and over again, kind of the factory line, you know, from inception to final product. And mm-hmm. I'm like still understanding it when I tell people like how you know, long the process is. And they're like, it takes how many months to like for the episode to be done or whatever. Yeah. But 
No, it was crazy. I mean, by the time a show came back from overseas where all mm-hmm. of our animation was done, right. it had been off my desk right. for you know maybe four months. Yeah. And I had done who knows how many shows right. since then. So when the footage finally came back and we saw it for the first time, sometimes you barely even remembered what it yeah. was. Right. You know, you've yeah. had too many other stories in your head. Uh-huh. Uh, but that was always very exciting, especially... And, and I'm going to go off, off the track a little bit here. Do it. Uh, there's a great moment in the early history of any show. Mm-hmm. And that is when the first shows start coming back. Mm-hmm. And you can, for the first time, see what you've all been making. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because you have, you have no idea. You, you know, you kind of, it's like you're aiming an arrow mm-hmm. but, and shooting it. But you have to then trek out to the forest and see if you hit the deer. And mm-hmm. I'm not advocating for killing right. animals. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it seems like it works, though. Yeah, yeah I think so. Uh-huh. So that show would come back. And, and I will never forget when Valentine's Day came back. There, there was just a, a moment when, when that show came back and, and they would pop it on a VHS tape and we would mm-hmm. run it in the lounge and everyone would wander in, watch mm-hmm. the new show, whatever it was. And when Patrick freaks out at the end of that show. I defy you, Hartman! It was, it made everyone, like, jump. Mm. Like, their their jaws dropped. No one had yeah. ever seen that before. Right. And Patrick was always just the sort of dumb, good-natured guy. Right. And, and when we wrote the episode, the basic idea was, this is the episode where Patrick freaks out. Right. It's yeah, just yeah. about getting him to freak mm. out a one time thing. Mm-hmm. But when you see that episode come back for the first time, like we did, right. suddenly everyone's looking sidelong at each other like this is a thing. This is something right. that matters. And we all realize, OK, Patrick isn't just the dumb guy. Uh-huh. He's the dumb guy. But this is right there under the surface. Right. And even if you never see that again, yeah. and, you know, maybe they have or maybe they haven't. Yeah. It informs the writing totally, and it changes the way the character goes. So you get the second round of shows mm. after people have seen what they've made. Mm. And that's when everything locks in and gets right. crunchy and cool. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we would, we would, no one would ever make an episode like bubble stand now. Hey, Squidward, want to blow some bubbles? Only 25 cents. Right. And yeah. Bubble stand is incredibly like it's so leisurely, the right. pace, there's nothing uh-huh. going on there. Yeah. There are very few characters. Um, it's it could only be made as a right. first round episode, and and I'm I'm not saying you know bad or good whether we should mm-hmm. go back to doing that kind of thing. I don't know that right. we can because it was easy to do. Hey, they yeah. blow bubbles for eleven minutes right. when it was episode three. Right, <laughs> so totally. We're two hundred episodes in, or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, now they need to be blowing bubbles on the moon in a horse right. suit if you want right. it to be remotely new. Right. Um, but yeah, there there were essentially two different shows. There's that yeah. first show that you make in the dark, uh-huh. and then there's the show that you make after you s- turn the lights on and, and yeah. see what you've done. That's so cool. <laughs> I understand everything now. Yeah. What kind of were, um, did you have any sort of tricks to writing different characters or like, how do you even start with a SpongeBob episode? I know you get like the outline or whatever, but are you pulling from inspiration from like real life? Or are you thinking, well, how would Patrick react here? What does that look like? Um, I I think everyone probably has different way of going about it. Some Uh people are going to 
approach it from a, a sort of vaudeville silent film mm-hmm. mode where we have a situation and now you're going to gag on that situation and, and create a routine right. Right. and see how long you can let it go and then bear right. it down later. Um, I tend to go from story out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I know where we need to end up and I mm-hmm. think, okay, what are the things that absolutely must happen yeah. in order to get me there? Uh-huh. And then what are the reversals that I can come up with along the way that will make it interesting? So everyone isn't expecting yeah. exactly what we promise at the beginning yeah. of the episode or so they get something different from what we promise. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's a different process and, and I don't know that I'm aware of it. Sure. Um, yeah. I, a, a major part of that process is terror. Right. Um, yeah. A terror of a deadline. Right. You know, if I, I mean, we, the deadlines for the original seasons were insane and they may not yeah. have changed. I don't know. Right. But in a different situation when you're scripting, uh-huh. um, we were writing and drawing at the same time. Uh-huh. And we had a sort of, you know, general outline uh-huh. in the premises that we got. But, you know, my, my feeling about those premises were they're, you know, they're a roadmap. Right. And they can be showing you the way to go where you want to go, or they can show you a terrible way to go to a place you don't want to mm-hmm. get to. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, they eliminate 180 degrees of spectrum. Right. right. So you can look at it and say, oh, yeah, we're doing that. Or you can say, oh, well, I'm not doing that. There's no way right. I'm doing that. Right. And then that you know, sort of informs what you're going to do with your time. Yeah. But I don't know that I would get anything done if mm-hmm. I didn't have a deadline. Totally. And the deadlines were crazy back then. Right. And I, I couldn't, there was, there was so little time and so much work to do that I couldn't procrastinate. Right. And I'm a terrible procrastinator. So right. when I was doing SpongeBob comics, right. I'm working from home. I don't have a boss looking over my shoulder. Yeah. And if I push back and say, well, you'll get it next week the world isn't going to burn down. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was not as reliable on, on the comics. I mean, I got my stuff done, right. But yeah, uh, sometimes it slid a little bit. Yeah. Fear is, is the greatest motivator. Yeah. That's so funny. I, I have never made SpongeBob or anything like it, but I feel that even just making this podcast where I'm like, I got to get it done for the next Monday. And this is just like a thing for fun or whatever, you know? And some of that is like, I'll be listening back to an episode be like, I cannot believe I completely messed up this edit or whatever, you know, but then that's just like the nature of like, you just got to keep going, you know? Yeah. And you know what, what's interesting about it is it's not that the deadlines and, and the fear mm-hmm. make you have the ideas. Totally. It, it, right. Those things, the deadlines and fear and the hurrying and, right. and, you know, your responsibility to other people kill your internal critic. Right. Who yeah. is the enemy. Yeah. And especially on a show like SpongeBob and, and nobody has a, a stronger internal critic than me. Uh-huh. I second guess everything and everything right. has to be logical. Right. So SpongeBob is not a normal fit for me. Right. Um, yeah. But the, the deadlines, you know, you just instantly two to the head, one to the chest totally. you know, or right. whatever. It's, that's, that's it. You can't afford to mm. sit around saying this isn't good enough or this doesn't make sense or yeah you know what if someone's offended whatever right you, you let them get offended and if they tell you to change it yeah you're right. absolutely right i right. will change that right. whatever it is uh you just can't monkey around so totally. I need that. yeah with that um so recently for for the podcast we're about to cover uh the camping episode 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's of course you and Dan Povenmire. Um, and even watching it, I was like, there's so much Phineas and Ferb DNA in this with the music and, um, the jokes and everything. Even when SpongeBob's singing, I'm like, I could totally see Phineas like singing this, you know, <laughs> what, how does writing for on SpongeBob compared to writing on Phineas and Ferb? Well, my writing jo- chores on Phineas and Ferb were not the same. Sure. Um, I was a director on that show and right. we had, uh, we had premises mm-hmm. like they had on SpongeBob, and then we had storyboard teams like mm-hmm. on SpongeBob. But I was not on one of those teams, mm-hmm. so they would get their premise. Maybe I would talk to them about what I, I kind of wanted to see before the show came out, but usually I would not. I would mm-hmm. let them do their thing, and then when they had a version to present to me, I mm-hmm. would give them notes. Um, even that didn't necessarily happen a lot, and we needed mm-hmm. to get a solid version of the show. And then it became my baby as a director. So Mm. we would have it put into animatic and it would time out at 12 minutes and 30 seconds or whatever. It had to be 11 on the dot. Right. And you just immediately start going through it with a machete Mm. and you bushwhack it and Mm -hmm. you you say, okay, this needs to go. This needs to go. This emotional beat isn't set up. So I'm going to add in Mm. the thing that's needed. And I think I can slot it in right here between Mm. the robot and the aliens or whatever it is. And then I would draw and I I would Mm. be drawing like crazy and pushing panels out to the animatic editor Mm. who was sitting with her back to me. And then we would put it in and then I would jump up. And if I needed to record a line of dialogue, I would record the line. We would sock it in. It was it for me, that's the coolest part yeah. of, of filmmaking, certainly in animation, right? Is making the animatic. You're really working mm. with clay. Right. So yeah. They've, they've created this sculpture and it's pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, you yeah. can see the ways to push it and pull it mm. and make it into something great. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it it wasn't that different mechanically. I mean, right. Steve and Derek we're doing on SpongeBob the, the job that I did on Phineas mm. and Ferb, mm-hmm. um, except doing it, you know, Steve was doing it as a creator and I was doing it sure. as Dan's representative, essentially. Right. My job right. was to give him the best version I could come up with mm. of the show that I thought he wanted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all kind of get in tune as, mm-hmm. as time went on. Um, but, you know, Phineas and Ferb was orders of magnitude more complicated to write right. SpongeBob, at least right. in those early days of SpongeBob. Right. Um, because, you know, we had three storylines that mm. had to come together in the end and a song in 11 right. minutes. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous on the face of it. It's a miracle right. that any one episode of that show <laughs> ever worked. Uh-huh. And we did tons and tons of them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a very, very different experience, but I, I imagine that, you know, even though the the writing style is different now because they're right. scripted on SpongeBob, right? The yeah, difficulty yeah. of writing that show has gone up exponentially, right? Because they have to slot ideas in right. between two hundred, four hundred, however many hundreds of episodes they've mm-hmm. made. You know, when we were doing it, it was easy. SpongeBob totally. and Patrick go to space, right? They blow bubbles. Right. SpongeBob goes to the bottom of the ocean. Done. Right. Right. You know, now they have to find this razor thin territory <laughs> in between existing episodes right. and make it interesting. And I, I mean, it's it's not an enviable task. I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, there's no uh, SpongeBob plays with paper for 11 minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> Premises. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Look, a sponge. 
change into starfish. There's got to be something we can make out of this. Oh, oh no, that's ridiculous. Um, so just a couple more questions, and these are a bit more grand of questions. This first one is one that we've just kind of been exploring with the entire um, podcast. And with this conversation, we've even been circling around it. But um, how would you answer the question, what makes SpongeBob SquarePants so great? What makes SpongeBob SquarePants so great? Um, I, I think... God, that is such a big question. You're right. <laughs> right. <That's> huge. <laughs> yeah. I, I think SpongeBob is, I mean, A, it is super fun to look at. Mm-hmm. You know right away when you see that shape for the mm-hmm. first time. Big eyes, big mm-hmm. blue, bright eyes, and that yellow square. And wait, he's a he's a kitchen sponge underwater. Right. You're constantly yeah. being like knocked for a loop mm-hmm. by how odd it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, everyone gets over that because he's everywhere now, mm-hmm. but it, it's great because it, it uses things that we identify with, um, and, and things that are, you know, very familiar. I mean, if you look at SpongeBob and Squidward mm-hmm. for my generation, they're Bert and Ernie. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, we never discussed that when we were making the show. Yeah. But if anyone ever said it or had to say it, you know, like, who are these characters? How do I write them? Right. Oh, he's, Bert, he's Ernie. Yeah. Oh, done. So, totally. you know, you're right. You're in that that zone. Mm-hmm. It's it's well-worn territory mm-hmm. for the relationships. Right. And all of these relationships that we right. have are familiar. Right. Um, they're just skinned in a new way and brilliantly skinned. Mm-hmm. Um, the designs are are absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Every character is a different color. Every character mm-hmm. has a very different silhouette. Mm-hmm. You can black them in mm-hmm. and know exactly who you're looking at at any given moment. Hey, I saw you on TV last night. New Brand Flakes. Bold new taste. Brand Flakes. There, there was just so much solid thinking right. structurally right. for the show that you almost couldn't screw it up. Right. But then yeah. the idea of, of being willing to be silly, um, Steve used to say all the time, stupid is funny. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, Mr. Left Brain, mm, yeah. which is me, yeah. um, that was really hard to wrap my, my brain around. And to some degree, I think I was probably there to bring right. that other side. And I, sure. I mentioned that earlier. Um, but stupid is funny. And, and it took me a long time to, to, to really embrace that. I wanted Patrick to say the clever, stupid thing. Right. And that <laughs> ain't it. Right, 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 right. You can't see my forehead. So, you know, yeah. I, I think... You know, that familiarity and and the sort of the brilliance of this new skin yeah, uh, is one of the things that that makes it great. But there's also something else to be said for the time in which it came out. Right. So Mm. we were, you know, we were almost still coming out of the very repressed 80s in a way, certainly culturally. There was a lot of, of uh, uh, culture that had been formed in the 80s and, and was on the wane. Mm. Um, and also just sort of structurally in Hollywood, it was you know, this was still a time when there were three channels for kids. Right. 
So if a kid had cable, I mean, there were still local channels, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But if a kid had cable, that kid really could only watch Nickelodeon, Mm -hmm. Cartoon Network, or Mm -hmm. Disney. Mm-hmm. And Disney was incredibly staid. You know, everything mm-hmm. that they did was very reliably family right. oriented in the Disney mode and nothing right. offensive or interesting. Mm-hmm. And Cartoon Network had not, and, you know, you may argue still has not found their, right. their niche. Right, right. Um, but, you know, Nickelodeon was, they. we were the maverick mm-hmm. network. Mm-hmm. You didn't know what was going to happen there. Mm -hmm. So whatever we did was going to be interesting, but it was also going to command a Mm -hmm. huge portion of the audience. So you had Mm -hmm. three channels. Video games were not back then what they are now, not by a long shot. There was no internet. There was nothing for kids to do indoors. Uh You know, if it's not playing a board game or doing whatever they're doing, if, if it's on TV, if it's a video signal, mm-hmm. we we had a third of the audience easy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you could pull in gigantic numbers and that's just kids. And when right. we started getting the college students, mm-hmm. there also weren't, you know, you they, we didn't have the conch shell channel. Right. We didn't yeah. have, you know, all of these incredibly niche cable uh-huh. channels back then. So you could have a mass cultural event. Hmm. Like the premiere of a new episode of SpongeBob or going back earlier, the the finale of MASH or whatever Mm -hmm. it is where everyone wanted to watch it. And it was water cooler discussion the next day. Right. Those days are gone. Right. There's there's probably never again going to be another family oriented show or Uh cartoon or anything like that that can ever capture a mass audience like SpongeBob. Right. It it just structurally isn't possible. Right. And you know, that, that gave SpongeBob a huge leg up, which is not to knock SpongeBob in any way. It's not that it isn't great. It is great. Instead, the flip side is there are probably other things that Mm -hmm. might command people's attention like that, Mm -hmm. but we'll never get the same chance because the Hollywood dollars are split and the right. eyeballs are also split between right. video games and social media and other channels right. and streaming. Like, uh, and this right. is a lot of I'll say on it. Uh-huh. Everything that was ever made yeah. is available now. Yeah. Back then, if it wasn't airing live, uh-huh. it wasn't on. Exactly. It, it yeah. It didn't exist. You had to uh-huh. buy a, a videotape or, you know, in right. the very early days of SpongeBob, we had TiVo. Oh my right. God. Yeah. So you can watch a show that was on last week. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. my God. We're living in the future. Uh-huh. Now I can, you know, I can have every Warner brothers cartoon ever made any right. time of day or night right. in the bathroom, on my phone, in uh-huh. a foreign country. Yeah. How are you going to get someone to watch a new show? I know it's so wild. Like, and there is just, I'm glad that I got to live through it, but, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to like become like curmudgeon like, ah, kids just don't get it or whatever, you know, but, but it does like make me a little sad, you know, like, yeah, like, uh, there was just something so magical about, you know, it felt like the gods let me watch the episode. You just turn on for me. It was like you described. I was either on channel 24, Nickelodeon channel 31, Cartoon Network or channel 39, Disney channel. When I was on Nickelodeon, I'm like, I hope it's SpongeBob and I hope it's like one of my favorites or whatever. And, and it just, you know. And you knew when you yeah. watched a new episode come out 
that everybody else was watching at noon. Right. And yeah. so when it was over, you could run to call yeah. your friend yep. and say, did you just see what happened? Yeah. And that can't really happen anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't even happen in the movie theaters. I mean, right. the movies were, you know, COVID uh, uh, final nails is a very big term. And I'm not sure. going to say that, yeah. but certain COVID certainly kicked movies when they were down Yeah, because that habit has gone away too. And there are, they're, you know, they're ineffables to seeing something uh-huh. with an audience, to experiencing a show at the same time as other people, even if you're in different places right. that can't be recreated by right. streaming video and can't be recreated by, oh, that sounds good. I'll watch it tomorrow and then we'll have lunch totally. and talk about it on Friday. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, something culturally has has been kicked while it's down. It's not gone and hopefully yeah. people will now recognize that there's value in those experiences mm-hmm. even if they're not mandatory like they used to be totally yeah just last week we were discussing uh born again crabs where one of the customers is like this place is awesome this movie hasn't even been in the theaters yet and i was just like oh that stings differently now like <laughs> that's how i watch all my movies and i just like want to go to a theater again and yeah anyway i feel empowered so what do you want to do now I don't know. How about a movie? Okay, well, with that, I just have one more question. Also grand, but maybe not so SpongeBob specific, or it can be, but uh, most of my friends that I've had uh, on this podcast are in some way like artists or creatives, whether that's music, fine art, graphic design, whatever. Um, And I like to ask them, like, what uh, wisdom or advice would you give to any creative um, that's listening to this? So same question for you. Could be as specific or grand as you want. Okay. Well, let's say we're talking about getting into the business, Mm -hmm. whatever business that is. Mm -hmm. Um, Recognize that when something new starts, Mm -hmm. the people who are running it hire their friends first, Mm. and then they hire friends of friends, Mm -hmm. and then they hire whoever's sitting in the lobby. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't have know the person and they don't have someone vouching for that person, mm-hmm. they just need asses in seats. Right. And yeah. then you find out later whether that person, the new person, can do the job. Mm-hmm. So your job as a new person in the industry is to make friends and promote yourself. Mm-hmm. Two things I, I did not do historically, <laughs> and I wish yeah. I had. Uh-huh. And then after that is done, to be the guy sitting in the lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, they will, you know, you'll wonder, am I, am I bothering these people too much? Am I calling Mm -hmm. them too often? I called them last week, Mm -hmm. but my experience was when I was getting started back in the nineties that I would call someone up and they would say, well, we're not hiring now. Come back in two weeks. And I would come back in two weeks and they'd say, well, you should have come in last week. You (laughs) brought in five different people. Right. So I, I learned far too late that -hmm. you call every week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you're, don't be annoying about it, right. but when your name comes across their desk, mm-hmm. they won't necessarily remember, this is the person who annoys me. Mm-hmm. They'll just remember, oh, I know that name. Mm-hmm. And it will give them warm, fuzzy feelings. Right. And then they'll be in a better position to get the job. So that's yeah. what I would say about that. Yeah. Um, creatively, I would say as much as you can, mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone has a different financial situation. Everyone has different opportunities. As Mm -hmm. much as you can, work on things you love with people you respect. Mm -hmm. Um, You will do the best work of your life when you are surrounded by people who are good 
and supportive and who want to make something great. There are plenty mm-hmm. of people in, in the business who are just looking to work. Right. And that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And you need all of those people. I mean, there are too many jobs mm-hmm. on a show for everyone to be passionate. <laughs> right. And not every, every job is necessarily passion worthy. Sometimes mm-hmm. people have their own side projects and you do this mm-hmm. to you know, pay the bills. Uh, but when you have an opportunity to work with people who are just nuts about what they're doing, mm-hmm. take it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that passion will make everything as good as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, in a very real way, I think it's the only way to make something that is good. Mm-hmm. I think everyone needs to be on board with it. Everyone wants it to be good. How would it ever get that way? Mm-hmm. If people didn't care. And mm-hmm. I've been very lucky in my career to have both the opportunity uh, to work on shows that are great like that and mm-hmm. with crews that are great like that. And to be very honest, the financial wherewithal to say no mm-hmm. at times when I didn't think it mm-hmm. was going to be that. And mm-hmm. I'm not always right about that. I've right. passed up a couple of good opportunities thinking mm-hmm. I, I had the inside line when I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, not everyone's situation is my situation. Just remember, eventually it will all be over. Yeah. You know, we, none of us lives forever yeah. and make sure that you get a chance whenever you can to work on something that you're going to look back at and say, yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. got to do that. Dude, that's so great and super inspiring. And once again, thank you so much for, uh, joining us on the podcast today. Uh, again, I am biased, but SpongeBob is the best cartoon ever made, <laughs> or at least, you know, in the past few decades, but I'll say ever made. I do. It is like my generation Simpsons and so on and so forth. And again, not just because it's in hot topic though, you know, good for hot topic, <laughs> but, but it genuinely is just like, so great. So it's great to be a part of it. And, yeah. and it's, it's great to be made to feel relevant. Yeah. So I appreciate yeah, how yeah, much yeah. you appreciate it. Totally. Well, thank you again, um, listeners. Uh, please, uh, if you have any more interest in all of Jay Lender's work, um, you know, go find him on Twitter. Um, I'll link in the show notes uh, the article that he referenced earlier. But with that, thank you. Bye, everyone. So there you have it. That's the interview. That's the conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, once again, a very, 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 very special and big thank you for the one millionth and second time to Mr. Jay Lender. Please, let's all give him another round of applause. Thank you, thank you, yes, yes. Uh, let's give him um, some Vuvuzela sound effects. There you go, not annoying at all. And then, uh, just for um, good measure, let's throw in uh, a random sound effect um, from one of the episodes that he wrote. Paper doll, yay! There you go, thank you. Everybody, again, um, please go give uh, Jay Lender a follow on Twitter. That's at JayLender1. He, uh, you know, of course, is like a human being in his own right. It doesn't just exist to like shovel us um, SpongeBob uh, content, though he does do a little bit of that. And it's it's always a treat when he does. Uh, and, and like he said, um, go check out, please, that um, excellent, excellent expose of SpongeBob SquarePants and oral history of SpongeBob SquarePants in Hogan's Alley magazine. I'll link it in the show notes again. If you haven't read it, what are you doing? And finally, what better way to uh, celebrate the fantastic Jay Lender than by coming back next week to enjoy one of his classic episodes, or at least a commentary on it. We're going to be discussing Krabby Land, for real, and the classic, the camping episode, for real. See you then, for real.
Krabs. Now hand over the secret Krabby Patty formula. Or what? I don't know. I never thought I'd get this far.